Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Matthew Heineman, an Emmy Award-winning and Oscar-nominated filmmaker. Escape Fire, the fight to rescue American healthcare, came out in 2012. Three years later, he made Cartel Land, which landed him those Oscar nominations and Emmys. It looks at vigilante groups on both sides of the border fighting Mexican drug runners. His latest film, City of Ghosts, is winning rave reviews and opens July 7th. It looks at a group of citizen journalists known as Raqqa is being slaughtered silently, or RBSS, which has been trying to document what ISIS did to their Syrian city. Matthew Heineman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Can you tell people who haven't seen the movie how you how you found out about this group and how you got into first contact with them? So, um, yeah, I was traveling around with Cartel Land, uh, my last film, and, and ISIS was becoming front page news. And I started reading obsessively about the group and trying to understand this phenomenon and eventually came across this article by David Remnick in The New Yorker about this group. Uh, Raqqa's being slaughtered silently. And just immediately upon reading it, uh, I knew that this was my way into the story. Um, and I reached out to the guys in the group. And about a week later, I started filming. And so can, can you explain how this group sort of came together and what exactly their, their aim was when, when ISIS started to take up a presence in their town? Sure. So again, Raqqa's being slaughtered silently is, is a group of friends uh, who were all sort of uh, brought together initially um, during the revolution. Before that, they were studying to be doctors, to be scientists, to be lawyers. But they, you know, during the revolution, they became media activists. First, you know, exposing the atrocities of the Assad regime. And then, you know, after the rebels ousted Assad from, from Raqqa, which was one of the first cities to be liberated, there's a vacuum in power that was created. And within that vacuum, ISIS rolled in. And so, you know, after ISIS began to take control of the city, uh, they formed this group, Raqqa's being slaughtered silently. They took photographs covertly, took video covertly, wrote stories, and really started to disseminate this sort of counter-programming to ISIS's slick propaganda videos that proclaimed a peaceful safe haven for Muslims. And 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 the content that RBSS, Raqqa's being slaughtered silently, was was sending out to the world uh, was showing quite the opposite, was was showing extraordinarily you know, extraordinary violence, extraordinary uh, human rights violations, um, you know, people who are starving. And you know, ISIS obviously was not happy with this. And so almost immediately they started to f- fight back against the group, arresting one of the, one member and, and and killing him, and and so some of the members of the group were forced to flee, and so my film basically follows them as they're escaping from Syria to Turkey and ultimately to Europe. What in 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 making this movie and talking to these people, what about both Syria as a country and ISIS as a group surprised you or changed your opinion um, from what it had been from reading news stories? Um, do you feel like do you feel like you you came to a different perspective about either of those things? Yeah, you know, I, I don't generally do a ton of research, and my films aren't aren't necessarily analytical films about how this conflict came about or like how to fix it. You know, I I really try to tell human stories. And I guess, you know, one of the things that 
that changed in the process of making the film that I learned while making the film was, was, you know, I originally started making this film because I was intellectually fascinated by this media war, by this propaganda war, by this war of information between these two groups. But, you know, ultimately the, the film became much more than that, you know, it became an immigrant story. It became a story of finding oneself in a new land. It became a story of, of rising nationalism in Europe. It became a story of, of trauma and the cumulative effects of trauma. And so, at least in the, in the way I make films, you know, I, I really want to remain open-minded and let the characters and the, and, and the story dictate where I go and where the story goes. You know, if you told me when I started the film that we'd film a, a neo-Nazi march in the, in the streets of Berlin and that that would make sense in this film, I would say you're crazy. But it does, and 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 that's ultimately where the story took us. And so, um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but um, no, you didn't. But that's fine. That's interesting too. I mean, I, I guess I guess what I, it's interesting that you say what stories you're attracted to because one thing I noticed with both this and Cartel Land is you're dealing with a subject where, let's say, I mean, at, at one level, it's there there are good people in both in both movies, but that the the sort of larger geopolitical sides in both movies, on both sides of that, you see um, it's it's very hard to find find a good side, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what's happening in Syria and, and, and you know, um, between, you know, Assad or ISIS, it's just so, it's such a complicated subject. Um, and, you know, there's as much as we as Americans want a silver bullet or as politicians or, uh, you know, want sort of one simple way to fix this issue, you know, as you know, obviously it's it's a, you know, six-year civil war between Assad and, and, and a number of rebel groups. It's a geo, excuse me, it's a proxy war between Russia, Iran, Turkey, the U.S., Syria. It's a vacuum of power that's been created in which extremist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda have taken hold in different parts of the country. And so it's really hard to differentiate between, you know, who's worse and who's better because it's endlessly complicated and, 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 you know, they're all different shades of bad. And I think the sad thing, like, like in most conflicts around the world is that the only real losers in the situation are, you know, the citizens of, of Syria who for the most part just want to live peacefully there have been more people killed in in Raqqa by the coalition than there have been by ISIS. A lot more from airstrikes. You're saying from airstrikes, and 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 now with the with the current ground battle that's happening as well. And so these poor citizens, all they want is to live peacefully, <laughs> and they have Russia bombing them, the U.S. bombing them, Syria bombing them. Uh, you know they're living under the rule of ISIS. It's it's so sad, um, you know, and and going back to your question of what have I learned, you know, one of the things that Aziz and and the guy, you know the members of RBSS have taught me is that bombs and and rockets and guns are not going to fix this problem. That this is really a war of, of ideology, and so how do you how do you fight that? Let me just ask you about that, because right now, as we're speaking, the coalition of which America is is leading, as well as Russian and Syrian government forces are trying to take away uh, area in Syria from 
from ISIS. And so I, I guess I'm wondering while while these, you know, you, you must be in touch with people in Raqqa or who've, who've just left still. And I'm wondering what they make of this fight going on for their city. As you say, the coalition has killed a remarkable number of people. And so, I mean, how do they see it? I mean, I, I assume they do not want to live under ISIS permanently, but they also probably don't want to get bombed. I mean, is, is there some sort of geopolitical... Uh, hope that the smart people there you talk to have, or is it just hopeless and they know that, you know, the next period of time is there's pretty much no solution to it where lots of people do not get killed? Yeah, it's it's not an easy answer. I mean, the short answer is basically, you know, anything is better than ISIS. Um, But that doesn't mean whatever happens after ISIS is going to be good for the people of Raqqa. Um, I think they're very nervous that, even if ISIS leaves, that they are, um, you know, another controlling force, perhaps another extremist group will take hold of Raqqa. It's really impossible to say or predict at this point. I mean, so much of the leadership of, of, of ISIS, excuse me, has left Raqqa. They're sort of rearranging uh, their personnel into different places. And so, yeah, the, you know, the future is really unclear. I think what is clear, and you know, a lot of people have written about this, is that as ISIS loses its sort of control, it, you know, the caliphate that they designated in, in Iraq and in, in Syria, you know, they've, they've lost over 50% of the land they controlled. Um, most likely they will resort more and more to these shock and awe terrorist attacks in the West. Um, you know, as we've seen uh, viv- quite vividly in, in in England, and so I think we need to p- be prepared that you know ISIS is not going away anytime soon. Do do the people that you're talking to from RBSS, uh, the ones who are living in Germany, or you know the ones who are watching what the coalition is doing? I mean, do they have some sense about what role they think that countries like America or Germany? I mean, Germany is not a great example because it doesn't really engage in this in this stuff militarily, but um, it, have some sense of what they think um, the quote unquote Western world should be doing about Syria. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of debate. It, it often in America tends to take the tone of should we be undertaking military action, more or less military action. But I was wondering how these people think about what the rest of the world aside from Syria's immediate neighbors should be should be doing about this world historical calamity it's really hard to say I mean you know they I think they were very disappointed by Obama um, I think they they felt let down I think they you know there there was a red line that was drawn and um, you know for a whole variety of reasons uh, after it was clear that that red line was crossed there there was not action. And so I, I think, you know, generally the people in Syria feel abandoned uh, by, by the Western world. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't have the exact stats, but, you know, I think around half a million people have been killed uh, since the revolution began. Um, that's, a, that's an astounding number of people. Um, and so, you know, I... I feel like many people just feel like the the Western world has has sat by and, and watched this happen. At the same time, you know now action is being taken, and you know civilians are dying every single day in airstrikes. And so, I, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, but I, I just don't see a lot of hope, at least in the near future. 
I, I think I think most most members of the group would agree that you know getting rid of Assad um, is is one step um, that can that can happen. But you know they as well recognize that in doing so, you know we need to figure out a, a plan for who will you know take power afterwards, um, and that you know the fear obviously there is that within this vacuum of power, more extremist groups come into come into the country. So um, yeah. I'm not a geopolitical expert, and that's not why I made this film. But so I'm speaking sort sort of offhand here. Well, no, I was I wasn't curious. I was I was more curious in in how the people that you you covered in the film were thinking about this. Um, I, I know that I know that that your job is not to come up with war plans or negotiating strategy, but <laughs> I want to take a step back and and talk about your career. How did you get involved in in making documentary films? Um, I got rejected from Teach for America. Uh, all right, and then what? <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I was studying history in college and I, uh, thought I wanted to be a teacher and applied for Teacher America, got rejected, um, and then hatched up this idea with three or four friends to drive around the U S for, for, um, a couple months to try to understand what our generation's about and bought a video camera, rented an RV and did this like, kaleidoscopic journey around the U.S., interviewing people from Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, to drug dealers and cancer researchers. And that was my first film, and that was my first experience making films. Um, and I and I fell in love and fell in love with it. You know, I'll when never did you interview Zuckerberg? Uh, Two thousand five. What was he like? <laughs> um, he was quite young. I mean, I think it was within the first year of when he founded Facebook. Uh, I, he he was just moving moving into his first office. There's nothing, you know. No, it was a basically a big empty office building. You know, he's an interesting guy. <laughs> I don't think any of us knew what Facebook would become or what he would become. But anyway, through the process of making this film, I I, I really fell in love with filmmaking and and was fortunate enough to you know have one thing lead to another and allow me to have a career and and continuing to tell stories. What made you want to turn to the subject of healthcare? which was a film you did in 2012 because it's, it's now on a lot of people's minds. And um, one, what, well, I, let me ask a question, two parts. One, what made you want to turn to the subject of healthcare? And two, what did you learn about the American healthcare system from that filmmaking process? Wow. You're like, you're unearthing all these, all these things I buried in my mind for, uh, for years. This is like therapy. So, you know, I know. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll send you the bill afterwards, or I guess you'll send me the bill. And I'll, I'll... Yeah. That, yeah. That's not how it works. Yeah. You haven't been to therapy <laughs> I, in a while. Clearly. I, clearly. Clearly. I didn't learn anything while making the film about healthcare. Um, similar, you know, similar to sort of, um, what we were talking about with, with the situation in Syria is, is people want literally and figuratively a silver bullet. Um, uh, both patients and, and, and sort of politicians trying to fix this problem. Um, and, you know, the system is a mess. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of thesis of the film, the, the conceit of the film was that, was that we have a disease care system, not a healthcare system, a system that profits on sickness, not on health. And so how do we sort of reverse engineer and, and, and alter this behemoth to be focused on keeping people healthy as opposed to just treating them after they get sick? And, and you know, in doing so, hopefully not only save the system money, but also, you know, improve lives. And then w what about Mexican drug cartels? I mean, I would imagine that that one was, of all your films, the the toughest to make and involved kind of the most um, risk. 
Would that be fair? Um, I I think City of Ghosts was harder to make. I mean, Car- Cartelland was absolutely devastatingly frightening. Um, you know, I was in shootouts between these vigilantes fighting against the cartels and the cartels themselves. I was in meth labs. I was in torture chambers. I was in all these situations that I never could have ever imagined finding myself in. Um, so, you know, it was an absolutely terrifying journey. City of Ghosts, it was also scary to make, um, but I never, you know, saw the quote unquote enemy. I never saw ISIS, you know, ISIS, even though I, you know, are filming in safe houses and, and with these people who are on the run and who are still receiving death threats, ISIS was um, sort of omnipresent, but I never actually saw them. But I think what made City of Ghosts harder, I guess p- perhaps in, in, in context to, to Cartel Land, was just the production of it. I mean, so much of it was in, in, in these very confined spaces, you know, and, 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 and sort of filming the logistics of getting into these safe houses and, 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 and filming with them. And, um, you know, they were in extreme danger themselves. And so, you know, navigating, you know, how, when, and where to shoot always, you know, communicating through encrypted means, but sort of filmically, how to find the cinema in, um, you know, for the most part, guys who are just, you know, forced to sit in safe houses behind computers and cell phones. And so as a filmmaker, you know, finding the drama and finding the human drama in something that was, that was actually quite stagnant to some degree um, was, was really, really uh, hard. But, um, you know, hopefully... You know, it's marginally interesting. Last question for you. I, I know ISIS is a group that has an ideology in a way that I think uh, Mexican drug cartels do not, or any drug cartels from anywhere uh, do not. But I, I was I was curious. You know, you talked about torture chambers and some of the bleak stuff in cartel land. Was there anything about both drug cartels and ISIS that you thought was was similar or? Um, just the 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 level of brutality is obvious, but but did you did you draw did you draw any correlations between them or um, similarities? I mean, I think ISIS. I, I don't know if, if literally, but they they really took a page out of out of the cartel's book. I mean, for years, the Mexican drug cartels have been intimidating people through extraordinary acts of violence, and they've been using videos and other sort of shock and awe. Uh, techniques to control populations, to dispel fear um, and, you know, intimidate their enemies. And these are all techniques that, that ISIS have, have used almost on an exponential scale to create these highly slick Hollywood style videos that are, that are disseminated around the world. Um, So I think there are a lot of similarities between the two groups uh, Matthew Heineman, thank you so much for joining me today. Is there anywhere that um, people who are interested in contributing to something that's helping out people in, in Raqqa that you know of could contribute to or any organizations that you think are doing particularly good work there? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the last thing I'll say quickly, which will answer your question as well, is for me, I, I think in this world where truth seems to be malleable and journalism is under fire, you know, I think it's incredibly important to celebrate 
individuals who are fighting for the truth, who are risking their lives to 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 seek out the truth. And you know, I can think of no better example than that than than the men and women of Rock is being slaughtered silently. So if you if you uh, I guess agree with me, or if you believe in, in in what they're doing, you can you can go to their website. Uh, just Google "Rock is being slaughtered silently," and they'll come up right away. Uh, you can donate to them on their page. You can follow them. You can um, you know tell people about this film um, to to hopefully you know allow people to empathize a little bit more for the situation of what's happening currently in in, in Raqqa and in Syria. Matthew Heineman, thank you so much. City of Ghosts opens July 7th. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from Daniel Schrader. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. We've been getting some great suggestions. That's ask, A-S-K, at slate.com. And one more thing, if you're looking for a great podcast from Slate, you should check out Trumpcast. The rotating hosts are my boss, Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, and Jamel Bowie, and they go deep into all things Trump. You can stay up to date on his latest tweets, his latest scandals, all the news about him. Each week on Trumpcast, you get all of this and more. Find it at slate.com slash Trumpcast.